Welcome to South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McEnroy. I'm here with Steve Walsh. Hello. Today we're doing a roundup of South London sport films. Norman Beaton leads a group of Brixton cricketers to the countryside to play a match that's friendly in name only in 1987's Playing Away. A post-Lord of the Rings Orlando Bloom is a milkman-turned-prizefighter in mockumentary The Calcium Kid. New Cross Stadium is immortalised in the Dirk Bogard speedway vehicle Once a Jolly Swagman. And wildcard Peter Cole is a washed-up British tennis player vying for an unlikely romance with a young American beauty and one last shot at glory in Wimbledon. When we were doing the New Cross episode, we talked about New Cross Speedway Stadium. So go back and listen to that and get episode guide on southlondonhardcore.com. But it occurred to me that maybe we could uh, throw together a South London sport films episode. And uh, the genre is uh, not a huge one, is it? It's not, but I think, because let's be fair, you did most of the legwork in terms of tracking down films and working out what we were going to talk about. And I think you did very well to find... Uh, as many films because you found more than we're actually going to talk about today and on lots of different sports people are going to be listening to this I would imagine and guessing that we've got three football films and a rugby film or something whereas in fact football's not represented at all is it? No there's no there are no football films set in South London as far as we can tell and I mean that's for quite an obvious reason that there are no major football venues really in South London are there I mean if you're going to make a film I mean Arsenal Stadium Mystery that was, they'd already moved over the river by that point. You know, if you're filming at you know Wembley or you know you're not, they're not making films at uh, the Den, are they? Old oh, or are they? <laughs> I thought you were gonna the Dream Team, Steve. The uh... oh right, yeah, it was yeah, but I mean, it's not really. It's uh... not a sport film. There was a TV show in the 1990s on um... Sky. Yeah, which I've no, I never saw. I mean, it was blatantly... It was quite an interesting sort of concept because it was as Sky was pouring ridiculous amounts of money into the game and changing the culture of football a lot in terms of the game itself, but also the way that players were perceived and behaved and reported upon. So it became a thing where footballers became celebrities and became synonymous with celebrity lifestyle in a way they hadn't really been before. And then you had this soap opera, essentially, from Sky that was yeah, all about... Dream Team. yeah. It was basically what a celebration of glorification. Yeah, yeah. It was all like these players sort of like, you know, getting fast cars and hanging out with models in clubs. As much as, or probably more than football. Dean Holness was in it. Dulwich Hamlet, legend. But yeah, kids at school used to watch it. But then shortly after that, footballers' wives came along and that was massive, wasn't it? Yeah, and that, that was, was, ITV. That was a, a more honest take on what uh, Dream Team was trying to do. Because basically it was all about uh, bling and excess. And fighting out of South East London with a record of no fights, no wins, no draws, and no knockouts. Ladies and gentlemen, a useless slag with no prospects in the game. The Milkman. We start with a film, Steve, that you had you saw at the time, I think, 1987's Playing Away. That's right, yeah. Starring uh, Desmond, Norman, Norman Beaton. <laughs> he can't escape it, can he? And, you know, it was pre-Desmond's, wasn't it? Yeah, it was pre-Desmond's. Um, yeah, I remember when you say I saw it, I didn't 
go to the cinema to see uh, a racially charged film about cricket because uh, mm. I was 12 and not, you know, I was sort of probably waiting for a new Back to the Future film rather than being that concerned about race relations in the UK at the time. But it was um, uh, Channel 4 co-production. Uh, so it, it was the sort of film that would appear on Channel 4 quite quite regularly. And I watched it a couple of times, mainly because I think it's a similar thing when we talked about Desmond's in episode one, when we talked about South London sitcoms. Um, it was the idea that it was a film that was filmed in a place that you went to. So, you know, you could recognise Brixton quite clearly. It's very definitely... It's not just set in London. It's not just set in South London. It's very much... It's outside Atlantic Arcade, isn't it? Yeah, well, they, they, you know, they use it as a, a, a big sort of establishing shot as a, a framing device, the bridge, uh, the the time, and I remember it from the time having the big uh, sort of display saying "We're back in Brixton" and the logos mm. of all the sort of major retailers uh, yeah. in Brixton at the time. Because obviously this is post riots, and it was you know a part of the sort of the, the business community sort of going "We're back in Brixton." You know we can we can you know change the reputation of this place for the better sort of thing. So a quick synopsis of the plot, Steve. Uh, the Brixton Conquistadors are invited to is it Sheddington or Sneddington 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 Cricket Club which is obviously a fictional uh... yeah they filmed it in Enfield but it's a small village and uh, they're coming to the end of their third world week having uh, shown a, a film about a, a documentary about some African people yeah you know, they, they... Well, it's some mystery work that was undertaken by a woman mm. uh, from the village where yeah. they, they rave about the athleticism uh, and uh, <laughs> the colourful culture yeah and then Possibly the music as well, probably talking about natural rhythm. Natural rhythm, yeah. So they get this ramshackle group of uh, cricketers for a friendly match. And at that point it cuts to Brixton, which is where, I'd say that was the most interesting part for me, was seeing the fact it was very very much shot on location in Brixton and with a lot of recognisable points. Even when it's sort of like the back streets, you sort of realise, there's a, a scene early on where um, the guy's driving around in his car and he sort of does a circle from where Brixton Tube Station is sort of yeah. around the back streets and then back again. And it, you sort of go, yeah, that would make sense. Mm. That would be the route it would take. It almost knocked over Norman Beaton in the process. Mm. Who's uh, not happy about it. But yeah, Norman Beaton uh, plays Willie Boy, who's like the, the captain of the club. And he's in negotiations with Sneddington to bring a, a team along to play uh, a friendly match. Yeah, one of the... Um... One of the players is after his daughter. Yeah, this is what's interesting about it is there's sort of tensions, not just between the two groups, but within the groups as well, isn't there? You have uh, <laughs> a remarkable moment uh, early on where they're all they're all at a party and Willie Boy was almost run over by his daughter's boyfriend earlier uh, and they end up having an argument. And it seems like it's a pretty standard argument and there's a bit of shouting. But then suddenly, Willie Boy just grabs a giant bottle and goes to just crack it over the guy's head. He's going to bottle the guy. And it seemed really sort of like... I remember like four people grab him. And you don't know if it's just him sort of like making a gesture. But mm. I was like, was he going to crack a bottle over that guy's head? Yeah, it's that strange um, ongoing thing in movies and TV shows about people not wanting their daughters uh, to have boyfriends. Which I yeah. find so bizarre. I mean, obviously... Uh, it's, it's something that's come home for you quite recently. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, oh, I don't know. Which... It's not an issue for you for another, you know, sixteen years. Is I it? don't know which episode's going up first, Steve. So maybe I should say it again that Lakeisha's pregnant. So um, you know, should more... I congratulate you? On Hashtag that? more Lakeisha. <laughs> um, literally, 
But yeah, so we'll see in like about 15 years. We'll keep you updated. What my views are. <laughs> but it just, it, it's, I find it difficult to uh, to uh, identify with on screen when it just, like, these people expect their daughters to just like not go anywhere near a boy. Yeah, it's remarkable. It's, yeah, it's kind of, I can't, it's just a story, a, a storyline I can't get on board with. Yeah, during this sort of evening, we meet um, the Conquistadors. Um, and it is, uh, it's interesting because, you know, across the evening, obviously we meet, Norman beaten early on, but it's not long before uh, Ram John Holder turns up. So you have uh, pork pie. Yeah, pork pie. Yeah. Um, but then, and this was the one that uh, threw me because I, you know, I remember watching it at the time. But obviously, this would have been like the early, the late eighties, early nineties. So I would have seen that Jeffrey from the Fresh Prince of yeah. Bel Air was in this, but never recognised it. No. So when it turned up in this, I was like, Jeffrey. Yeah. From the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. When his name came up in the credits, Lakeisha said, "You know who that is, don't you?" Did you yeah. know? I didn't no, know. It's only, no, she knew. So right. she go when his name came on, she went, no, and then when it came on, I knew he was coming, you know, I knew he was coming. Yeah, you see, I didn't know. And then he turned, and he's, um... He's doing quite a bad accent, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of, they're, they're all, they're mostly supposed to be Jamaican, aren't they? Yeah, There was yeah. one at some point who goes, I'm no bleeping Jamaican. Yeah, yeah. But I'm not convinced it's that all the actors are uh, Jamaican. Yeah, there's a lot no. of people from the Caribbean being yeah, Jamaican, yeah. isn't it? Well, um, I mean, they say words like rascal to just make it genuine. <laughs> I thought it was interesting as well in terms of uh, his particular character. Um, and it is this, uh, this thing that I remember from TV and film before that you just don't get anymore. Um, where this guy's in like a drinking club at three in the morning, but he's wearing his full uh, bus driver uniform, isn't he? Yeah. Full, but yeah including yeah. the hat. Yeah. Like it's on the buses. Is that what people used to do? Like, see, this is the thing, they must did have Did you used to go to the pub in your Fortnum's outfit? <laughs> I did. I did actually go uh, clubbing once in my Fortnum's outfit. How did that work True out? story. Uh, quite well, actually. I had some girl laughing for most evenings. <laughs> nice. But it was awkward. She had have you still got the uh, outfit? Cause... Yeah, I've seen it. <laughs> it's uh, pinstripe trousers. They're very flattering. Um, but yeah, it was just, I, I don't remember. And you know, it was 1987, I wasn't going to the pub. But it just seemed really odd all the way through. Just but no one else seems to sort of go. Uh, you're not going to take that hat off. Maybe you point. see it though, don't you, and stuff. You do see it. I, I think it's kind of a ham-fisted way of going. This guy's a bus driver. Yeah, sometimes, exactly. Yeah, this guy, the postman. But at the same time, I think um, people probably weren't going home to get changed as much in those days. I mean, people. But take people your hat weren't off having. Why is he wearing that hat? People weren't having three showers a day like they're having now. Are they? <laughs> do you know what I mean? I'll just go straight. I'll go straight from the bus. You know, I'm on the bus. I'll go straight there. I'll come home first, am I? I was just surprised he didn't have the uh, machine sort of uh, strapped <laughs> around his uh, tickets, please. So they go to, um, they hire a minibus and they go and play this cricket match, Steve, um, and suffer a bit of prejudice on the way there. But again, even with Sneddington, uh, again, you know, similarly, some familiar faces uh, in some early roles. The guy from Emmerdale, the fat guy, Fred Summon, who's in Gandhi. I think he was in it. All right. I, see, I, I, I spotted Neil Morrissey. Obviously. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, Ross Kemp. Ross Kemp? I didn't know yeah, yeah, Was just, he one of the louts? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And this is, this is the thing. In the same way as within the Conquistadors, there's like a generation gap, isn't there? there well, there's also the, the young black guy that's got the white wife. And mm. he's a, he seems to have like moved away from the group a little bit on that basis. So there's like tensions within the group because they seem to have grown apart 
or you know, there's age differences, and there's like the younger generation don't respect the older generation, yeah. and vice versa. With Sneddington, it's very class based. Yeah, there's a big class divide. You've got the duffers and uh, the sort of posh boys. Yeah, but then you've got the uh, louts. I'm, I'm absolutely jiggered. <laughs> but then you've got the the sort of like oafs, and they are. And they, this is the thing that the, mm. the, the working life are just uh, just portrayed as uh, meatheads. Yeah, there's boozing uh, yeah. in the village square all day, and just waiting for a chance to be racist. It feels like, doesn't mm. it? And then they get it, of course, because the computers always turn up being, uh, you know, very black. <laughs> One of them brings a ghetto blaster, yeah. just so you don't you don't get confused about you know where where he's from. There's a few attempts at sort of bringing the groups together, isn't there? But nothing really takes. Yeah, most notably, um, uh, I was going to say Desmond, uh, Willy Boy, yeah, um, and the guy who eventually refs the game, yeah. the guy who walks around in the cream suit, who's a bit more progressive yeah. in his thinking. Yeah. He doesn't just see these people as savages. Uh, yeah. You know, when, I mean, sort of the people... It's 1987. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and they have a little chat, don't they? Yeah. Especially about going back home and stuff, and there's a lot of, that's a bit of a theme that runs through it going back. Which is, which Desmond obviously had in, in, yeah. in Desmond's. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, there's a bit of banter. Um, you know, black men always licking you, that's what you don't like sport. <laughs> um, obviously, the closest you come to any sort of cross cultural uh, agreement is uh, a late night shag in a churchyard between. Mm. Uh, the, uh, a young man from the Conquistadors and a, a girl from the village. Inevitable. Almost. I didn't think it was all that, Steve, if I was a bit, a bit rubbish. No, yeah, it wasn't great. I, I mean, I, I thought there was some interesting points. The idea that there were divides within the teams, you know, the idea of like the generation gap, um, the sort of side and the sort of class, but it's never fully played upon. I thought the most interesting thing, uh, and something that wasn't really emphasised enough, was the fact that to celebrate Third World Week and to cap uh, a look at the work uh, that's been done in and for Africa, uh, they invited a team of West Indians to yeah, play yeah. cricket. And you're like, yeah. I, I, I don't know if that was a... I mean, obviously, the film... Oh, yeah, that would make that quite an interesting... Um, yeah, yeah, if that was... Del- if they it was never really addressed. I mean, yeah. I, I think it might, it, the film is, is produced... Uh, it's a black director and writer. Yeah. So I'd, I'd like to think they've got enough about themselves. You know, they're not confusing Africans. <laughs> are they? But yeah. uh, I thought it would be quite interesting if they sort of had a scene where they talked a lot about... You know, they'd had a sort of scene where they talked a lot about Africa and the third world. They don't really acknowledge Africa at all, do they? No, that's the thing. And yet, uh, you know, play up the fact that for third world week and for, you know, a celebration of work in Africa, you've got Jamaica's on. Because, to be fair, there are, you know, uh, not so much tensions, but, you know, Jamaicans wouldn't yeah, appreciate being, even being more so bracketed in, in Africa. Yeah, they yeah, they yeah. wouldn't appreciate being brought along to represent Africa mm. because they're not African. So uh, I thought that could have been an interesting point. And as I said, I don't know if it was just like, thrown into the background as a little sort of wink towards the audience. But I thought it would have been interesting to bring that forward and play off on it a little bit more. Because it just occurred to me once, because particularly watching, well, only really watching the film this time, when I was younger, it never even occurred to me. But it just I was like, right, it's Third World Week and they're trying to video Africa. Why are they inviting Jamaicans to go and play cricket? Mm-hmm. I like the fact um, that there's no real resolution at the end. It's not a okay. case. It's very sort of Seinfeld. It's no lessons, no hugs. It's not a thing at the end. They play the match. There's a slap bass and then credits. <laughs> well, listen, they play the match and uh, there's a horrible argument and there's real sort of tension and just sort of breaks out in the match. And no one sort of goes, uh, you know, 
make you, in a, in a, a slightly more clumsy film there'd have been an impassioned speech by someone uh, and they would have sort of like realised the error of their ways and you know they would have all appreciated what they had a little more but instead what happens is the match is finished and uh, he's going to come back and go no don't need advice for tea do they <laughs> and you're like it lost me thinking well someone's going to invite him for tea and they don't they don't invite mm. they just get in the van and go home so you're left with this village that's been torn apart by arguments and resentment and these guys who are getting back on the bus who aren't really feeling any better about themselves. I mean, Willie Boy and uh, the young guy that he argues with at the start sort of share the innings that wins the match and they sort of have a handshake and a wry smile to one another. But it's very far from, uh, you know, Willie Boy clapping the arm around the shoulder going, I'll be proud for you to marry my daughter. You know, it's, it, mm. it's not that sort of film. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not a film where they go, uh, and they'll all live happily ever after. They're all going back to uh, pretty much the situation that they started with, if not even more uh, resentment. So I thought that was quite interesting. Mm. So there's another um, cricket film that's set almost solely in South London, which is a film called The Final Test, which I watched last night and which you haven't seen, Steve. I refuse to watch two cricket films. <laughs> um, it was quite good, though, man. It's from um, the 50s. It did intrigue me. I, it'd be worth watching at some point. Yeah, you don't I'm have sure to watch it for the show, right? But yeah. you could, you know, bang it out, because it's shot at the Oval. Um, yeah, it's about... Um, I watched uh, so many bad films for this show. You know, I should watch a good one, shouldn't I? Yeah, well, no, well, it's not that good. You know what I mean? Right. It's like it's about as bad as all the films we're covering today. What? <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's about this uh, Jack Warner, is it? Who plays? Um, it's the last day of the Ashes, and it's also his last ever Test match. And he's played stacks. He's played for England for twenty five years or whatever. And but it's explained um, in the beginning of the film that like this American senator get um, it gets off a train and he's sort of just wandering about and people are talking about the cricket. And they're talking about it with such seriousness, he thinks the country's in crisis and realises they're just talking about cricket. And then yeah, he sees headlines about England on the verge of collapse. And yeah, exactly. He's talking about, this is it for England, and he thinks yeah. the country's going to fail, but it's just the England cricket team. Yeah, so you've seen the beginning? No, no, I just know the premise. Because it really yeah. appealed to me. Yeah, it's it quite amusing. Reading, reading the, the sort of like premise of the film, I was like, that sounds like a really interesting film. It's quite an amusing opening scene as well, mm. because he's sort of, people are going, you know, are we, um, you know, this is it, we're, we're England, finished. finished, yeah, yeah. and he's, you know, unless it rains, and it's like, you know, this guy's like, what's <laughs> going on? So he just, he goes, he gets a cab and goes straight to the tent, uh, to the uh, Oval to watch it and um, there's loads of shots of like proper, Eng- a proper England match at the Oval so it looks really you know like this is the trouble with um, not with, not particularly with any of these sport films actually but generally um, on TV and in films when you get a shot of a stadium and it's not a proper stadium it's just you know when it's just head on so you can see like a square of like 16 people or whatever um, it doesn't look very good but this all looks great but yeah but so um you know, the film then is focuses on this the cricketer and his son who um is a, a poet and he's trying to sort of uh, get he's trying to get in touch with his playwright to kinda of, who's got a play on T V and he wants to go and visit the playwright instead of going to watch his dad's final test match. And as you know, it's quite entertaining. A bit odd that the um the guy play, the main character, uh, the actor was fifty eight when they filmed it. He just looks <laughs> well old, you know. <laughs> Um, well, as far as I understand, as well, when when the boy goes to visit the playwright, the playwright insists on listening to the cricket, doesn't he? So he yeah, that's the, it. Yeah, he, he still gets, gets to hear. Yeah, and he's a re- he's re- the character's great. It's played by, played by Mo- uh, Robert Morley, who I recognise. I don't, I'm not sure what he's from, but the name rings well. He would have been. Uh, I remember him from a lot of things from the eighties. I remember the name sort of being banned around. Yeah, he's kind of uh, he's kind of 
quite camp, quite fat. Yeah, I was going to say he's a larger guy. Intellectual yeah. type. And he's like quite an amusing character. Like a Swedish sort of character. Yeah, he's not interested in this young poet at all yeah. until he finds out who his dad is and he's like, oh, we must go to the Oval, you know. <laughs> and uh... I think um, one of the things about sports films generally, and it's something that worked particularly well with playing away, and it's the reason why there's very few successful football films, the problem is obviously the, the, the sequences themselves. Mm. They... You know, I've, it's very rare you see any football sequences that look worthwhile. I mean, for a state's victory, they got Pele in, and yeah. it looks acceptable. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you've got the greatest player in the world at that point, and uh, it still looks a bit ropey. And, and I think we're playing away. The fact that it's set up as a, a friendly game between two amateur teams means you can have the people playing cricket, and if it looks like it's a bit of a ropey delivery... That's fine, but here using the footage from an actual England test. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's no good. Easier to do cricket. You can cast Jack Warner as uh, England captain at fifty-eight, and that's fine. But don't actually give him a ball and get him to go up to Mm, throw Googly because it's not going to happen, is it? Going back to the Nunhead episode, Steve, from a few weeks ago, Dennis Compton shows up as himself. So, which I've read, and it's only when um, he's he's just um, about to go up to do his last, uh, you know, have his last innings, and. uh, Dennis, some a guy walks in who I obviously didn't recognise him, and he goes, uh, "You know, best of luck today, chap." Or however he talks, and the guy goes, "Cheers, Dennis." And and I press, oh, you know, I paused it and I googled and Dennis Compton, and it's the same guy, you know. Because you thought it might be Dennis Bergkamp, another Arsenal legend. Could, could have been. Um, do you, oh, do you recognise? Do they show the streets around the Oval in a way that you can recognise? Not so much. They do, no. but they do show an exterior of the Oval. They show people queuing up to go in. And do they don't show the tube station at all. Um, not that I recall. No, I mean it's only I inside the Oval. I'm establishing shot of like crowds streaming out the tube station and heading round. Yeah, like, there might have been. There was there was certainly loads of stuff of crowds outside the Oval. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Going into the ticket yeah, um, yeah. booths or whatever. But yeah, I mean very much. I mean it's obviously the Oval is historically the most significant venue in South London isn't it sporting yeah. venue yeah absolutely and uh, yeah it's kind of of all the films I'd say it was probably the best one but well I didn't see yeah but, <laughs> but not so good that you should regret not seeing it okay I don't like cricket I love it it was a good catch wasn't it good catch the one well got out to it at mid off well, if that's what you call a good catch now I know what's wrong with your fielding a child of six couldn't have missed it. Besides, it wasn't mid-off, it was mid-on. No, I think Once a Jolly Swagman is one of my favourite movie titles of all time. It's wonderful, isn't Brilliant, it? Isn't it? Yeah. Do you know what the American title for it was? I do. Maniacs on Wheels. <laughs> Which is also brilliant for, for, for different reasons. Sounds like a is, Roger Corman film. The thing is, the, the title comes from the first line of Waltz and Matilda. And... Once a Jolly Swag... I only know the... Um, Tom Waits version. <laughs> but uh, the song plays more or less throughout the film. Mm. It's remarkable. Like It plays over the opening credits just like an instrumental version and uh, various points is like refrains just sort of like popping at dramatic moments. But there's a bit uh, there's a bit in the hospital where someone just puts on a record player and the record player is walks yeah. in Matilda. There's a bit of the dance where there's the, the, uh, the dance during the war and someone puts on a record player and I'm like that better not be honest. Oh bloody hell. Yeah. It's like they've obviously... You, you just get the feeling they paid someone some money to get the rights to this song. Well, the and they're like, we're having it 17 times in this film and no less. Well, well obviously we're going to go through the film in a yeah, little yeah. bit of depth. But very briefly, it's about um, 
a rising star of Speedway uh, on the Cobras team, which is and they've you know it's all filmed at Newcross Speedway Stadium, um, and it's kind of a, it's sort of about the dangers of uh, the dangers of it. Um, also, clear stuff about kind of players, um, riders' rights. You know, kind of the yeah. idea of a yeah. sportsman's union and stuff. And we'll come back to all that stuff, Steve. Yeah, but why? Why wants a Johnny Swagman as a title? Well, I think we can talk about it at the end because I, I, I did think about that, and I've got a couple of theories. Okay, but I think it'll, that will come out from from the plot. So, I mean, essentially, we've got Dirk Bogard as Bill Fox, as you say, a young and up and coming speedway rider who joins the team. And it's sort of taken under the wing by a couple of the more senior riders, um, one of which is the top rider and he's become an alcoholic and he's quite sort of depressed because he realises that all his glory doesn't really mean anything. It's transient and he feels he sort of wastes his life a little bit. So Bill's got this sort of cautionary tale, but ignores it, doesn't he? He sort of embraces mm. the glory. And he, there's a, a really, uh, I thought it was really wonderfully done in terms of just the wardrobe and his uh, sort of hair and... Uh, yeah, there's a real uh, shift in, there, yeah. in his wardrobe design once he uh, gets him. Uh, well, he, he starts off working success. in a factory and becoming this sort of young rider, and he's you know quite you know well dressed and and but still sort of quite quite scruffy, and his hair's decently numbed up. But when he becomes like the star of the team, he gets like a pencil thin moustache, yeah. and he's going around in like a, a polka dot uh, bow tie. He just looks like a dandy, a complete dandy, and he's just, he's completely caught up in in the celebrity and the glamour, isn't he? And like he he manages to uh, become engaged to Mary, the sister of the former star of the Speedway team, who in the meantime crashes and had a, has a nervous breakdown. So he, he's he, he constantly got, as I say, this cautionary tale. It's almost like you know if you were a Speedway rider and someone crashed in front of you and you're just like driving along and you're seeing the person crash and dismount. Mm. And this is what he said: he's seeing this guy crash in front of him but makes all the same mistakes again. Yeah, it's not exactly subtle, is it? It's not, but I mean. You know, it's a morality tale uh, from a time when these things were done in a very he- heavy-handed way. You know, he, it, it, it's all the classic sort of temptations, isn't it? There's a, a great sort of montage scene where, um, you know, the, the manager of the team, in a wonderful bit of casting, is a young Sid James, who's still one of the seediest men you're ever yeah, he's good in Any time he's on screen, yeah, it just yeah, becomes yeah, a bit yeah. grimier, doesn't it? And there's a great montage as uh, Bill becomes more successful of like larger and larger wads of money being counted out by Sid James and mm. handed to him. And it is just sort of like this whole thing of greed and, and, and then lust as well. He sort of meets, he's married to this very simple young woman who, who hates Speedway because she's seen what he's done to her brother and warns him so many times against falling into the same traps. But he sort of cheats on her with this uh, uh, glamorous, vacuous woman who's also a Nazi sympathiser. <laughs> and that's another thing where it's sort of heavy handed you're going yeah. we get that she's not pleasant but there's a scene of her at Nuremberg <laughs> yeah. a, a photographer and he's like he picks up the photograph and goes oh she's like, uh, like at Nuremberg last year it was just uh, yeah. just happens to be a German like you're at the Nuremberg rallies were you this is uh... yeah there's a when you were saying about the uh, montages like they just slip in there's a bit of this slip in Hitler yeah. in the montage yeah. and there's a bit where just to show time passing oh there's Germany yeah. invading Poland just seems quite it is interesting because heavy it'll just, handed. It will just sort of finish a race, and then, as you say, it will cut to a montage that will be uh, troops mobilise, uh, hmm. tensions rise, and then suddenly it's Hitler, and you're like, and then it cuts back to Bill in uniform lounging around uh, a motorcycle demonstration. Going back to Sid James, right? 
He looks about 50 in it, Steve. And he's only 35. He looks well, so old. Watching, again, I've never heard of this film until we were trying to watch it. So, and I knew the, the basic thing. I didn't know a lot about it. So I put it on. And on the credits, uh, as the titles are rolling, it says Thor Heard. And I was like, well, this film's, you know, 1949. Mm. I, I, I assume Thor Heard's probably going to be the love interest. Probably going to be his girlfriend in it. And I was like, I think I've never seen Thor Heard young. Like, my enduring memories of Thor Heard are doing the Alan Bennett monologues uh, as a very old woman. And being a brilliant actress, well, it'd be so interesting to see young Thora Heard, mm. you know, gallivanting round. Uh, and then she comes and she's his mum. She's Dirt Bogart's mum. And I'm like, was Thora Heard mm. just born 40? I didn't realise she James was South African. I, I thought she was Stepney or something. Yeah, yeah. South African. And he didn't come here as a kid or anything. He was like a full grown adult. He came just before this film, so he was in his 30s when he came here. That is remarkable, isn't it? It is. Um, yeah, the... The, the the star of the team that Bill Fox takes over from is played by um, Bill Owen, more famous as Compo from Last of the Summer Wine. And obviously, you know, later in life, uh, Thor Heard and Bill Owen were both in the cast of uh, Last of the Summer Wine for a long time. Never seen it. Well, yeah, you, you know of it, didn't you? And so it's quite interesting that these two people who are in this film, and I don't think wouldn't share a scene or anything, would they? But then, sort of like 30 years later, would be cast. In this sitcom that went for for years, wonder if they even remember. Uh, yeah, I wonder if it ever came up in conversation that they sort of like, one of them thinks they were in Maniacs on Wheels. <laughs> you know that Speedway film. Yeah, what was all that about? How about the American guy in it? Right, I thought he was, he was my guy doing an American accent. He's, nah, he's American. Yeah, he, he was he was the best character. He, he's um, he's called uh, Bonar Colliano in real life. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, Tommy yeah. Posey in the film, um, and basically he's uh, he's the voice of reason, isn't he? All the way mm. through for everyone, people even during the war, he's like just sort of telling people, well, maybe don't do that, you know. It's just, but, but um, as Bill goes through his team and has the cautionary tale of uh, Bill Owen's uh, brother, it's called Lag, Lag Gallagher, is it? It's got he's got a mad name. He's called oh, Lag for a start. Um, but uh, yeah, he um, he sort of is telling Lag not to drink so much. He's telling Bill not to be so capricious. He's sort of warning people over it and eventually becomes uh, the manager of the team and gives Bill a second chance after the war. And when Bill turns him down, he's quite sort of philosophical, isn't he? He sort of realises he just wants people to make the right decisions, sort of thing. Um, interesting thing about... Uh, I don't know if you didn't even know about Bonar Colliano because I became fascinated well, just because of the name. I was like, yeah. where's that name from? And he, obviously a talent. I think it's pronounced Bonar. I'm trying to avoid uh, <laughs> trying to avoid obvious bonus, <laughs> um, but he um, he grew up in a circus family, uh, and oh, his right. yeah his his uh, family were all gymnastic performers and tightrope walkers and trapeze artists, bearded um, ladies, and he <laughs> he actually trained as that as well. Um, but most famously, uh, he had uh, an uncle Con Colliano, who is the first man in history to perform a forward somersault on a tightrope. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's pretty pretty spectacular. Yeah. Isn't that entirely unrelated to South London, yet fascinating? Hmm. <laughs> that's what we're bringing you. Yeah? Little, little snippets like that. Um, all the romantic stuff in it is awful. I thought. Again, it's, it's the time, changes. isn't it? No, 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 it's not no. the time, is it? I mean, you've seen Casablanca. It's a break of mine. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just, it's just really badly written. I refuse to accept there was no romance before. Yeah, you know, you've seen the, you know... I don't know, any, plenty of good films, isn't it? I mean, you can make a strong argument there, I suppose, for the fact that Dirt Bogart was gay. 
So oh, I didn't know that. All right, yeah, Kurt Bogard was very gay. So I mean, Kurt Bogard, Dirk Bogard, <laughs> Kirk, <laughs> Kirk Bogard, uh, Dirk Bogard was a gay man who hated motorcycles. <laughs> so casting him as a speedway rider uh, with a number of romantic interests was probably uh, quite a challenge. I think it's also problematic that the script is terrible. There was that issue as well. I'm Bill Fox. I'm a speedway star. You know, it's just all <laughs> on the nose, man. There's one bit where he's sort of. Um, like yeah, so he, they get married, right? And his wedding speech, right? <laughs> he takes the opportunity yeah. to call out uh, the owners of the team, doesn't he? Yeah, and yeah. weirdly, he's invited to his wedding. Well, they're sitting next to him, and like Sid James makes a very gracious speech, and then the owner of the team makes a similarly gracious speech, and then Bill Fox makes a horribly ungracious speech. And yeah. but again, Tommy Posey goes out to Afton and goes, uh, "Well, that was probably <laughs> not a great idea." Yeah, you get the obligatory um, main character looking in a mirror and realising yeah. how bad they are, seen. Yeah. Um, and as it, it ends up in divorce. Don't watch the film. It ends well, up in divorce. Um, it doesn't end in divorce, does it? Doesn't it? No, they go to the lawyer's office after the war, and she's asked for a divorce, the wife. But then they meet there. Oh, of course, yeah. yeah, yeah. He, they sort of, she's asked for a divorce, and he's happy to give it to her. But then she goes to visit his mum afterwards, Thora Heard, and uh, she sort of goes, you know, I still love him. And the final scene is essentially Bill Fox given a chance to win back his place on the team yeah. by Tommy Posey. But what he's got to do is beat the young up-and-coming rider mm. uh, on the team, who used to watch him when he was a kid. Yeah, in an empty New Cross Speedway stadium. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so they have the race and Bill wins. But as he sort of pulls up and he's won, and they're just about to, they're sort of like, you can captain the team, you can have your place back on the team. His estranged wife standing there and he just walks away from it all to go to the wife. So in the end... It takes him long enough, but he realises the lesson. And Love is more important than Speedway. <laughs> or sport in general. In terms of Speedway, I mean, I know we talked about on the episode, and you had some impressive figures for attendances at the time and the amount of interest in it. But, and you sort of appreciate it, but seeing the actual mm. stadium yeah. fall was, uh, yeah, it was amazing, really. Wasn't yeah, it? I thought one of the speedway scenes was, uh, one of the, the, the um, races was really, really well done. Like, really uh, exciting. Uh, and, you know, just a really, there was a scene I put, I, I link up to it on the website um, when we talked about New Cross. But then there's a scene where there's a kind of major crash in it that's so badly yeah. shot. Yeah. It's just appalling. Apparently, the uh, speedway scenes in Money for Speed uh, from 1933 are more impressive, but I don't think that exists anymore. <laughs> Well, obviously, um, Dirk Bogard hated motorbikes generally, so he didn't. But that's all right. They wear masks, didn't they? Yeah. They, so they got they got actual New Cross uh, riders to double up for them uh, in the film for the sort of the, the, the scenes where they're actually riding the motorbikes. Except, obviously, for the close-ups where it's clearly done against a backdrop, isn't it? Yeah. It's just like, you know. But it looked, I thought it looked quite good, though. No, for the time, it looks, it looks fine. There's, um, did you notice next door, uh, you occasionally get a shot of uh, the old den? Don't see much of it, but it's only because like we were. um, Well, I was watching with my dad, and he pulled up some old um, ordnance survey maps, and you can see when you say pulled up, it's from the side of the couch now. Because like your dad's just like, what a resource to have to hand. What a mess. (laughs) Just one more thing, Steve. Um, As he's um, sort of becomes a speedway star, you know, starts making some money, more and more successful. It's a bit where he goes to like a kind of fancy party. It's a bit weird where this um, this black man walks past in the background. Did you notice that? I didn't notice that. No. So bizarre. It's just and it's not commented on. It should be commented. <laughs> on. Do you know what I mean? For the time, 
I think, I think the idea is they've got people from dignitaries from around the world sort of thing. Okay. But there's a fish tank with frogs swimming about in it. <laughs> I didn't notice that either. So odd. <laughs> um, do you want my theory as to why it's called Once a Jolly Swagman? Once a Jolly Swagman, always a Jolly Swagman. Is... That's the line, isn't it? No. Well, there's different versions of Waltz and Matilda. Oh, okay. Um, Once a Jolly Swagman, always a Jolly Swagman was... Uh, that I, I, that came up when I was like searching around on it, but that's not accurate. No, it's a that's a title by an Australian punk band. Oh, okay. Yeah. But because it's an Australian song, isn't it? It's an Australian song. It's Walter Matilda, and the opening line is something along the lines of um, "Once a, a jolly swagman uh, lay down beside a billabong," and it's about uh, a swagman who's uh, an itinerant worker who basically stops at a watering hole uh, with his uh, and their bags were called Matildas, the bags that they would. Uh, carry their goods in called Matilda so walks in Matilda is carrying around your bag and uh, he stops at a watering hole uh, catches a sheep kills a sheep um, eats the sheep gets caught by the farmer arrested by the police and killed and then his ghost haunts the billabong haunts the, haunts the watering hole for times after that and it's yeah. him it's the ghost of this uh, swagman uh, just haunting the watering hole uh, because he's died because he was hungry and what's that mean? Well, I, I was looking at, I suppose, you know, with... Well, well firstly, you've got um, the character of Lag Gibbon, the sort of old star of the team, eventually goes back to Australia. You find out about halfway through the film, him and the sister are actually Australian, and the team pay for him to go back to Australia to become a farmer. On a boat, yeah. Yeah, so he, he goes back to uh, become a farmer, and you've got sort of Bill, who's the young... Swagman, I guess, who's wandering around, who has to learn the lessons of okay, the other Swagman. Yeah, yeah. So like, it's almost like the ghost of, of Lag is haunting Bill and, and reminding him and warning him not to make the same mistakes. But he does. And then finally, uh, he learns from him. I suppose it's like um, Saffron Hardcore, isn't it? Right, you get the name and then you start trying to find meanings for it. You know what I mean? Yeah, Sometimes yeah. You yeah. kind of, sort of look for the meanings afterwards. Why is it? Why was it called Maniacs on Wheels, Steve? Is it because they're maniacs on Wheels? <laughs> yeah, I'd imagine because I, I would guess by the you know it was mainly nineteen forty nine. I would guess it didn't get immediate US distribution. But if it got distribution in the US in the fifties, there was uh, a sort of swathe of biker movies, wasn't there? The wild ones and whatnot. So I would guess what you would do is probably do a poster called Maniacs on Wheels, and you would have posters showing. Uh, motorcyclist and then you'd show it at a drive-in and everyone would turn up and go what is this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's no flip knives here. There's no... <laughs> they're wearing leathers and they're... What? Oh, what's he doing that? There's frogs in a fish tank. And then you'd be furious because uh, you've just watched Laura Heard teaching us one life lessons for half an hour. Where do you think you are? Wandsworth Road? Wandsworth Road could teach Mayfair a couple of things. Next one we looked at um, is about boxing. And it's possibly the worst one I've ever seen. The Calcium Kid. It's not a good film. No, no, it's a bad film. It's actually about, it's just a question of how bad a film it is, isn't it? It's not a question of if it's good or bad. We can agree <laughs> it's a bad film, can't we? Yeah. We don't need to sort of go, oh, is it good or bad? I don't know. It's bad. We just need to determine now if it's the worst film that's been made. No, not even no? close. No? Nah, nah. The outline of the film uh, is, it's a, a, a mockumentary. Uh it's about a documentary film crew that are following uh, a boxer from South London who's got a shot 
at the middleweight title against pound for pound the best fighter in the world who's an American fighter um, British fighters played by uh, Tama Hassan which I think this might be the first one I've actually seen him all the way through I know he makes films but I don't think I've actually seen one of his films before The Business is he in that? Is he in that? Because I've seen that Yeah and um, I think he is in that man But he's in all those sort of films isn't he? Yeah, all the, the worst sort of films that you don't want to see Yeah. I mean, we'll talk later about you know who should be in this film and who shouldn't be in this film. Mm-hmm. I've got quite a definite list of people that should have no part in this film. And I think people go, fair enough, they're going to do this film. But yeah, he plays um, a fighter that has a world title shot. And while sparring, uh, he breaks his hand on the head of one of his sparring partners, who's played by Orlando Bloom. Fresh off of uh, being Legolas in uh, Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And what was the other major role we had? Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. Which would have got the... Um, some attention for the film. Well, this is the thing. I don't know how these things are scheduled. These, this came out after those two. Yeah, well, no, Lord of the Rings would have already been made and released, wouldn't it? Yeah. Because that was 2001. But so, I don't think Pirates of the Caribbean, they, they wouldn't have, I don't think they would have got him. And this is 2004, isn't it? Yeah, so it probably would have been, might so have been made, made 2002, I would estimate. So, it was, he, so he signed the, the contract to do this film after doing Lord of the Rings? Yeah. So he did Lord of the Rings... Uh, the most successful franchise in film history, is it still? Well, probably Harry Potter because it's twice as many films. But remarkably successful films, and he became an international figure. Globally Maybe he wasn't famous the actor. lead, was he, Steve? But still, he doesn't need to do this, does he? A red sun rises, blood will be spilt this night. Is that from Lord of the Rings? Maybe that's yeah. But um, yeah, so it just seems remarkable. If, if he'd signed the contract for this, then did Lord of the Rings, and they went, I've still got to do. No, because but the thing is though, you got to make that leap from being um, a, a, an ensemble actor to being the lead. If you yeah. want to, you want to, if you want to lead in a big Hollywood film, you're going to have to have done a lead in someone else. Haven't you? So you, you basically take the springboard of a terrible mockumentary <laughs> set in Vauxhall, yeah, and go, and then you go back to Hollywood and go. Do you remember Lord of the Rings? And you said yeah. I couldn't lead a film. Well, have a look at this. That's and one route. It. That's one route. It's not a route though, is it? Because what's he doing now? Probably a milkman. No, but he went on to do. Um, uh, Kingdom of Heaven, didn't he? Ridley, Ridley Scott uh, didn't do well. Notorious flop, yeah. Okay, yeah, but that's not because of the calcium kid, is it? I reckon it is. I do actually think it can't have helped, can it? Should we start, Steve? I'll tell you why I'd already seen the calcium kid. Um, yeah, go for it. And this better be a good reason, because this means, of course, you saw the calcium kid and then said to me, "You have to watch this film." So I'm putting it on you. That I've had to watch when I said you film. have to watch this film, I meant because this is a legitimately a South London sport film. Not you must see this because it's so good. And I knew it was bad. Yeah. I started writing screenplays in uh, 2001, I suppose. 2002, maybe. And I wrote this film called Cornelius. Yeah, about this guy in his early 20s. He worked in a record shop. And uh, he's kind of after this girl. He's kind of his his ex-girlfriend he was trying to get back with. And like everyone said he was a bum because he worked in a shop, you know, even though he was quite sharp and stuff. Like you've probably come across that, Steve. <laughs> Have you? Uh, not particularly, no. Nah, behind your back. <laughs> you know, but you know what? When people look down on you for working in a shop, you're oh, like, yeah, oh, yeah. when are you going to get a real job? Yeah. yeah? yeah when yeah. are you going to mind your business? <laughs> but obviously more handsome than you, more of a movie star look. Yeah. You didn't write this film with me in mind. Wettier. No, I didn't know you did that. You were, Slimmer, uh, taller. You were working at the uh, sweet section in Fort Lewis Mason at the time. But yeah, so um, he decides what he's, he's. Some people try to mug him on the way home one day, and he kind of uh, beats them up. Yeah, so he decides that 
he's gonna fight crime instead of uh, you know that's his that's that's him doing something with his life and no one really takes it seriously obviously he just goes around hitting people with golf clubs and eventually gets the girl back kick ass yeah very similar <laughs> but well, we'll see you many years before, before. Yeah, yeah yeah yeah, no, yeah very similar like, like very similar kind of uh, you know obviously different but yeah yeah but anyway I kind of just decided that Orlando Bloom was the only person who could play this role yeah like because he was quite a big you know not quite a big star but do you know what I mean he was kind well, of no, you saw this film when he'll do anything like, no before I saw it <laughs> that's why I watched the film right yeah. but at the time I had an Orlando Bloom calendar you know, just because it would uh, keep me going with motivating for writing the film. And I, I don't know, a Legolas so, poster. Well, what's that writing you for? <laughs> no, because then I could be writing the film and I could glance around at the Orlando Bloom poster and it'd be like, one day, Orlando, you and me were going to make this movie. So occasionally, your sister would sort of come into your room and wonder why your room looked more like a teenage world than her room. Yeah, Kezia was a huge fan of Orlando Bloom at the time too. But we she were both big fans. She, she probably hasn't got an Orlando Bloom poster after she... You're probably a bigger fan. She did at one point, man. Almost so. Then you nicked him. He's a handsome <laughs> man, dude. He's a handsome man. But no, my friend Ben bought me the... Uh, he's been mentioned, what, three episodes in a row now? Yeah, yeah. Who, uh, he bought me the uh, calendar for Christmas. It was a joke. So, I don't know, man. I used it. Yeah. Anyway, so I thought, oh, I better watch this guy's films. Um, obviously, I've seen Lord of the Rings already. And um, Pirates of the Caribbean, I suppose. I think it was in Midsummer Murders once, but I don't know if I could track it down. <laughs> Yeah, so I watched uh, Calcium Kid, and it's uh, not funny. It's a comedy that's not funny. Yeah. A pretty dismal piece of work, really. There's one line, uh, you know, just to give an outline of it, um, after uh, Tamar Hussain's character breaks his hand on uh, his sparring partner's head. His sparring partner, who is Orlando Bloom, who has a very strong head, because he's a milkman who drinks three pints of milk a day, so his bones are incredibly hard. Um, he then gets the shot of the world middleweight title um, and Omad uh, G who plays uh, the promoter who's putting the fight together orchestrates things um, and then it's following him uh, training and preparing uh, for the fight until he comes to the fight for, there's many criticisms you can level at this film but the idea that as an audience you're supposed to sort of go oh right so uh that guy broke his hand, so he mm. loses his shot at the world heavy uh, world middleweight title. So they just find another person, ignoring mm. the fact that there's there's rankings in boxing and there's contenders. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that it's not accurate. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that someone who isn't a licensed boxer doesn't immediately get a shot at the world middleweight title. But it, leaving that aside, it's a comedy. Um, some of the gags are um, embarrassing. It's mostly things people have misheard, isn't it? Yeah. Things people... That's the thing, I, I was saying to someone the other day, I was like, it's not a script, because a script gives an, uh, an element, has an element of design to it, and you make decisions, and you hone the words, and you get them to do things. This is just people writing down things for people to say. There's a bit where um, the promoter, uh, Homer Gini, gets... Uh, he's, he's talking about uh, some fighters' prospects, and he says uh, he's got two hopes, Bob Hope and No Hope. Yeah, my mum's made that gag many times. Yeah, but it's not even a real gag, is it? It doesn't even... It's just no, but like, you've heard that before. Yeah, yeah I've heard it. Before. But the thing is, like... Don't put it in a script, though. But th- this is the thing, like, Don King, who's an actual boxing promoter, um, famously talked about... And I'm, this is probably supposed to echo this, but famously said that, you know, he's quoted as saying about um, a boxer's chances before. He said uh, he's got two chances, slim and none, and slim left town. It's a better version of the same gag. Isn't it? <laughs> so in real life, uh, a boxing promoter who isn't a professional writer is doing better 
Yeah, you should hear that and be inspired to do something better, not do something worse. I it's thought the, uh, you know, riffing on um, Rumble in the Jungle, the melee on the telly. Yeah. I thought that was sort of semi-amusing. There was one gag that I enjoyed in the whole film where, as I say, it's a, a fake documentary and, uh, again, the with Julie Carroll is talking to the camera and he's complaining about his American co-promoters and they uh, say, so you know, these Americans, like, they can be pricks. But when he says pricks, it's beeped out. And then the next thing he says is, um, probably best if you beep out Rockall and Pricks, and it's not beeped out. Yeah, and that sure. sort of works a gag, and I was like, okay. But that was it, in terms of anything that worked. Oh, there was, there was one bit that made me laugh, right? Peter Serafanovich is, in it very, very briefly, as a radio host, yeah. and he just makes a, he just does this little gag, and he does like a quite a camp face, and we move on. And but, also Frank Bruno's uh, brief cameo. Well, Frank Bruno, <laughs> Frank Bruno and uh, Chris, Chris Eubank both turn up, and this, for me, exemplified... Uh, the state of this film because I'm not a filmmaker but the fact that you see it and basically the shot is of uh, Orlando Bloom his best friend and his trainer sort of preparing for the fight and that's the shot and then it cuts to the the opposite side of the room where there's a door and the door opens and Frank Bruno walks in and goes and just looks at the camera and goes I want to tell you tonight you can do this yeah you you can do this you can do that and then it cuts back to them doing reactions and cuts mm. back to him talking. And you're like, it's clearly second unit and they're not in the, you know, this is like three weeks later. But their response to it is so cack-handed and the actual editing of it is so bad. And then the yeah, and he walks out of the room and they're just like giggling to Yeah, it's like, so, there's no interaction with it. And it's like, okay, you've made it very clear that nothing actually, you know, it just so, so sort of clumsily made, so badly made. It made me think of... Um, Suicide. <laughs> well, it made me think of Mackenzie Crook, who, coming off of The Office, went on to make, famously... Sex Lives of Potato Men. Yeah. No, but the thing is, right... Had he signed a contract before The Office? No, no, because oh. he was like... He had been in one of the greatest sitcoms of all time. But yeah. the thing is, these people have to work, though, Steve. Oh, That's this is the thing. This is, I always still talk to you about this, because I don't know how these things work. Like, I, my, my first thought was, there's people who owe favours here. There's people that have been done famous. Yeah, that's previously. probably part of it. But I think, I think, I mean, it's like anything, isn't it? Um, Jules Clooney, he don't have to go in a Nescafe advert, right? No, yeah. Of course yeah. he does. He's a millionaire. Yeah. But you know, forty-five minutes and he gets like a million pounds. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And who cares if some people see it and don't like it? Or I mean, that's one point of view. The other point of view is why waste your time doing something that's appalling if yeah. you're already rich? But also, the thing is with with adverts. That you know, that's not counting towards George Clooney's body of work, is it? For for people like well, uh, Orlando Bloom and Mackenzie Crook, this is this is IMDb, this is Wikipedia, this is your CV, this is your filmography. These count as entries. So, although I, uh, this is what I was, I was looking at, thinking there are certain people, in the, and I say we'll make a list in a minute of people who will have the rent to pay, and that, but there's other people who are doing more harm than good to be in this one, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, but I just, I don't know, it's difficult to know with the timings, but I don't, Orlando Bloom wasn't the star of Lord of the Rings, he was one of the stars. Right. And it, you know. It, it just seems like anyone would read the script and go, can you talk to my agent and make sure I definitely get yeah, it? Yeah, because the script wouldn't have been good, would it? No, and, and like the concept, there's nothing about it where you go, well at least there's this. Maybe, like, maybe he just really wanted to do something set in Lambeth. <laughs> yeah, he lives on um, in Vauxhall, doesn't he? Yeah, it's it's you know it's set in South London. It plays up with the fact that it's set in South London, which generally they keep calling it South East London, though, don't they? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, which, which is inaccurate. Of course, yeah. yeah. Would, would, well, 
you know, they've also got, you know, a, a bloke walking on the street and getting a, a world title shot. So, you know, there's a lot of... Uh... Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, and generally with the show, when people do like to accentuate the fact that things are setting stuff up, we, we, we're all about that. And we like that. With this, just embarrassed. Every time Rafe Spall's character appeared and talked about, you know, talked about South London, this and South London, you just waited to, like, push him in the river, didn't you? Just sort of, like, it's you... from Fee, Dollars, man. I know. He that's, is that's, that's what I'm saying, he should know better. Quite tubby, bringing, isn't he? Why is he bringing shame on the area by uh, making films like this and talking about South London in such a way? Um, other people that should know better. I mean, Mark Heap, again, and I'm not going to do... Why am I? I'm going to make a list of people's work and then sort of go, why doing this? Mark Heap was in Spaced. So he's yeah. read funny scripts. So he was in 12 episodes of Spaced and what did he do after that, Steve? Retire. No, but he, the thing is, he's read scripts and he knows what a good cast looks like. There's no way he's read the scripts and look at his cast and gone, I need to be involved in this. Can you? And he's not. He's not starving, is he? He can do other things. Hmm. Peter Serafinovich. It's a yeah, funny Peter's man. He's in for one. He's in like he gets like two lines. Yeah. Why? This is the thing. We got a decent payout, isn't it? He's got bills to pay, Steve. Mouths to feed. <laughs> All his mouths to feed. I mean, Omar Jalili. He's even with him. You sort of go. He's a successful stand-up comedian. Yeah, but no. Well, he is, but like, I don't mean this is the quality of. Uh, the calcium kid is much worse than a lot no, of his output. This is true. This is true. But then, as I say, there's there's certain actors, Frank Harper and Tom Hussain, who just do films like this, don't they? Who's like Frank Harper? Uh, well, to be fair, Frank Harper has uh, been in like Shane Meadows films, but he's essentially he's the dad. He's Orlando Bloom's dad. Oh, that guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And he's like he, Tom Hussain and Frank Harper. Essentially, uh, and this is going to sound quite disparaging, but this is their career. So they're professional cockneys, aren't they? Essentially, they turn up. To play a very specific role, mm. uh, you know, Sam Hussein. If he's not shouting at someone, Danny Dyer. To... Exactly. You see, if these people, well, this is the interesting thing. I looked at uh, Mag. I was so uh, appalled by this film. I had a look, and I was like trying to find the, the director, uh, Alex de Roscoff, I think his name is. And I was like, no one let him make a film after this, did they? This was it. Surely, no one sort of went. Here's some more money to make another film. But they did. He directed uh, Dead Man Running five years later. Which stars Fifty Cent and Danny Dyer. Oh yeah, I need to see that. You don't need to see it. Don't, don't 50 say Cent that. And Danny Dyer. Yeah, but Danny Dyer's anything with Danny Dyer isn't as worth watching in a way. Well, it's going to be funnier than this, although it is supposed to be um, a drama. So this is the thing. He's obviously gone off to, and uh, uh, you know, I haven't seen the, the uh, cast list, but if uh, Frank Harper and Tony Saint aren't in that, he's missed mm-hmm. a trip, isn't he? So with them, you sort of go, right, they've you know got these awful roles in a terrible film, but that's essentially what they do. They do things like The Football Factory, and they do like awful roles in terrible films. So go for it. But I don't know. you know. And again, Rafe Spall, he's young, maybe he needs to build up his career. Billy Piper, what's Billy Piper doing this? Well, this is pre-Doctor Who, isn't it? It is pre-Doctor Who, but, you know, wait for Doctor Who. It's an easy way to make a living, isn't it? I, sp- I don't know, it just, uh, yeah... And this thing, it hasn't hurt him, is it? Rafe Spall's just in Prometheus. Billy mm. Piper's doing uh, the cool girl thing, isn't it? Yeah, these exactly. People, don't, it's not the stop these people working. Just because you think it's an appalling film, which it is, yeah. doesn't mean that, you know... These that, people are going to stop working. Yeah. And that's what's wrong with the British film industry, isn't it? If we just let me decide who can be working and who can't be working. Michael Penner's in it as well. Penner, however that's pronounced. And yeah. he went on to be quite big. Well, he was in The Shield. He was brilliant in The Shield. And, you know, but he's, he's just turned up. No one in America has seen this, have they? I, but, Do you know what I mean? He's, he's yeah, got a little bit of a payday. Michael Lerner's in it, who 
Yeah. You know, work with the Cohen brothers. Oh, he got is an Academy tremendous. Award nomination for Barton Fink. He is that is tremendous in that film. Yeah. He's got two scenes, isn't he? Or is it three? No, maybe it's more than that. Yeah, but he's at the beginning and the end, isn't yeah. he? And then once in the middle. He got nominated for that, did he? Yeah, Oscar, good, good. Oscar nominate uh, Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor. Why why is he all the other people you can sort of go, okay, they do this sort of film. These people are young, they need a chance. How long do you, how many, uh, how long do you think he was doing, um, how long do you think his scenes uh, to, to shoot? Oh, three days. Exactly. Do you want to come to England for three days and we're going to give you this much money? And no. In a film that isn't, it might not be very good, but no one's going to see it in America. It won't have any effect on whether the Coen brothers cast you again. Yeah, go on then. Ronnie Ancone is in it, uh, who I'd like to talk about. And it, I think it's just because I'm annoyed with this film. Uh, she's, she's awful in it, as, as most people are. You know, this director despite the fact he can't put together a uh, story or decent shots, also can't draw performances out of people. Um, I've got a personal beef with Ronnie Ancona because a few years ago she brought out a rubbish book. Did um, she? Yeah. Uh, it was called... Oh, I forget what it was called. I'm not going to say the title. But definitely, do me a favour, don't go to Amazon.com through jmod.com <laughs> and order anything by Ronnie Ancona. She used to come into Waterstone. She, a few Christmases ago, um, she wrote a terrible book about trying to get Alistair... McGowan to yeah. uh, stop watching football so basically it was her trying to get Alice McGowan to watch football she wrote a book about it and this is sort of you know when you get these books that only get published because the person's famous I think I had it in my section man humour humour yeah I, and yeah we had humour on the first the humour section where you keep the least funny books in the shop <laughs> yeah. but um, uh, maybe she visited you as well but she'd come in every no I've often. never seen her in real life oh, right. no she used to come in and the first time uh, she came in looking for, I don't know who she is I don't watch impressionist programmes on telly she was like hi have you got this book so uh, I look around and I find it and uh, she's like oh right um, just it's supposed to be a bit more prominent and I was like is it she went yeah I wrote it about my friend and I was like oh right and it was one of those things where you go so you're the author yeah. why didn't you say that for your own book well like, they're never going to say are they but as soon so as you, they do that you sort of think I've just wasted you're not going to buy it You're not. this isn't going to help anything you're just wasting my time I could be doing proper work rather mm-hmm. than essentially massaging your ego so at that point um, every time the book came in, I'd just sort of put it in the worst places possible. A, because it's a terrible book. And, it, you know, this it, in the same way as films like this is why the British film industry, or partly why the British film industry struggles, books like that is why publishing struggles. Don't just get give a, a, a book contract to someone because they're good at being Victoria Beckham. Isn't it? She is good at that, though. She's very good at that. So give her money for that and don't let her do anything else. I think Ray Spall's the only person from this film I've served... <laughs> I, don't, I didn't think about that have I served anyone else from this film no I haven't I didn't even serve her as I say she just wanted to uh, make sure oh, her book existed some kind of service it was too much because she won't spend any money was she I don't think we need to go too much into the plot ins and outs do we no it's uh, you, know, you know this is the thing don't watch it you know this is public service broadcasting mm. us essentially just saying, if you get a chance to watch the film don't do anything else rather than watch this film one of the things that struck me about watching this film, a lot of product placement. Does that strike you at all? Yeah, milk. Yeah. Actually expressed dairies. Why would you want to be associated with this? And like, there was a, a um, Just Juice used to pop up on, on the tables quite a lot and that always struck me. Cash, isn't it? Mm. David Kelly plays Orlando Bloom's trainer. Paddy O'Flanagan? That's right, Yeah. As someone who owns an Irish passport has come to Irish descent, has family in Ireland, David Kelly, as far as I can tell, made his career 
just doing Irish stereotypes. Yeah, I've, he's terrible, isn't he? It's just it, it's just an embarrassment. Yeah. I, you know, I remember him. My earliest memory of him is from Forty Towers, and if you remember him in Forty Towers, mm. but he's the sh- comically stupid Irish builder in like Orly man. Yeah, yeah, this is it. Yeah, Mister O'Reilly, and uh, it's just. But then you sort of go, well, it was the seventies. You know, they didn't really know. You know, that was how comic stereotypes worked you know not that it's correct but it's really... and in the same way in Robin's Nest um, he played uh, a stupid uh, lazy Irishman as well and again he goes to the 70s but this is the 21st century and uh, he's still you know there's a running joke through the film where uh, he keeps using the wrong name for him. and at the end reveals he always knew what it was <laughs> yeah. well, what reason yeah, exactly yeah <laughs> then why do you keep calling him Johnny if you know because uh, I'm Irish <laughs> and that was the thing there was one as he was introduced I was just sort of like thinking oh god this is going to be embarrassing it was and I thought if do you know what if they can get through this film without referencing Riverdance you know I'll be stunned they didn't manage it did they they didn't manage it they did a scene oh, I thought it would be a much larger scene no, they I, didn't I mean, manage to get through without referencing Leprechauns either no it's um, it's unbelievable you know unforgivably bad his, his particular and the thing is he should be embarrassed. Yeah. It is one of the worst films I've ever seen. Actually, it's seen. just dreadful, isn't it? It's, it, it? You know, try and find a bright spot. Big up all you sounds like the rude boys. Later. This is World Championship Boxing! So we're recording on Wimbledon men's final day and Roger Federer has just beaten Andy Murray which means that the last British champion of Wimbledon remains Peter Colt. <laughs> uh, no, Fred Perry. But yeah, the film Wimbledon came out in 2004. Uh, when I said to Steve that he uh, we could watch it for the show, I mean, obviously, he was thinking of Woody Allen's match point. Yo, I sat down to watch this thinking, oh, this is... And I managed to conflate the two films in my mind. Because I didn't know Match Point was a drama. So I, I thought, oh, Wimbledon, that's the Woody Allen film about Wimbledon. And I knew that was a sort of romantic comedy. So I was like, oh, great, it's going to be a Woody Allen romantic comedy set around the Wimbledon Championships. And in a way, you get the worst of both worlds, don't you? Because with Wimbledon, it's a romantic comedy that has nothing to do with Woody Allen. And with Match Point, it's a Woody Allen film that isn't a comedy. So, you know, what am I here for? Paul Bettany plays Peter Colt, this uh, British wildcard, and he's what is it? His career highlight is uh, he was once ranked eleventh, and he's now one hundred and nineteenth, and he's won two singles titles. And the closest comparison I could find was John Lloyd, who won one title, and his highest rank was twenty first. But John Lloyd didn't win Wimbledon, did he? Well, exactly before the film before the film starts. So there's no way. I mean, it's ridiculous. There's no way this guy should go beyond the second round. Well, no, even this bitch got a, a wild card entry in 2001. But what round? I know. Was the time? This is the thing, right? You go on Wikipedia, goes. This film was loosely based on Goran yeah, Ivanovic. It, it is very it's, loosely, isn't it? Yeah. No, no. It, Goran Ivanovic had played in the Wimbledon final yeah, yeah, a couple no, of years before, yeah, yeah. No. and uh, I think oh, I've, I did write, I did look it up, but Ivanovic was once ranked in. Certainly the top five, maybe oh, yeah. even the top yeah. three. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like the fact, yeah, obviously the, they were both wild cards, but this Peter Colt character, 
You know, I mean, it just kind of makes it uh, ridiculous from the word go. Well, they do. They do one round where uh, he gets a buy, where someone gets injured against it. So that, yeah. that you know, they do. They try and make it as 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 honest as possible, and they make it clear that you know he, he is playing beyond himself. And also, you know, to go into the plot, uh, he starts off as a complete outsider for Wimbledon and no hoper. Um, he goes in thinking he's going to retire. Well, he, he whatever happens, he's going to retire at the end of Wimbledon. But then I think what you're supposed to buy into is uh, the magical element of him falling in love and that inspires him and gives him the strength to sort of persevere. Like, there's certain, there's, a, there's at least one match where he's up against it and Kirsten Dunn's character turns up and at that point he comes Boom. on and, yeah. So, you know, and I, it's a romantic comedy so I can, you, you can buy into that element, can't you? It's supposed to be fantastic, isn't it? So... It's um, the first one I've seen that was dedicated to the memory of a sports agent. Did you notice that? Jerry Maguire. <laughs> uh, Mark McCormack. Uh, is that, I didn't know the guy. Yeah, was. it said this dedicated to, and I was like, who's that? And then sort of did a bit of digging, and it was like, yeah, a sports agent. So One of the credits I noticed at the beginning was tennis consultant Pat Cash. Yeah. yeah. So he's got a lot to answer for. We'll come back to that <laughs> But yeah, no, it's you know the film starts with a dismal voiceover, such a movie once, voiceover. Once the voiceover started, I was like, this film because this yeah, is the thing. within seconds, you know, you're watching an, aw- an awful film. Well, that was the problem, isn't it? I I went into this thing. I say awful. It's not. It's not, it's not appalling. No, no, but it's bad. Yeah, it's not. It's not enjoyable at all. I mean, I went into it thinking, all right, this is going to be a Woody Allen romantic comedy, and then the film started, and it was like directed by. There was Alexander. no jazz. There was no jazz. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, all oh, right, so it's not Woody Allen. And then the car sort of started to come up, and I was like, okay, um, I, I'm not a big Paul Bettany fan, not a fan of Kirsten Dunst, James McAvoy, not really. You know, Sam Hill, uh, Sam Neill, Sam Hill. Sam Neill's done a couple of things I quite like, but there's nothing. There's a bit of a ropey American accent in this. But I, was, I like James McAvoy, but he's quite annoying. Well, this it, is the thing, there's, there, and there was no one that you sort of watched at any of the sort of league performers where I thought, well, that was, you know, this is something to look forward to. I mean, and then the voiceover started, and I was like, this is going to be a struggle to get through. But, fortunately, there were a couple of things, and this is probably, uh, you know, unfair to, to gauge the film on this, but a couple of people did pop up from other things. Jamie Lannister yeah. from uh, Game of Thrones. And was, I recognised the voice, but I recognised the face. I was like, yeah. what is... And I, I had to like do a double take. And, he plays uh, uh, the kind of buddy and sometime... Uh, training partner of yeah. uh, Paul Bett and his character and obviously ends up having to play him in like round three or yeah. whatever it is yeah. and I thought it was, with that it was nice that they didn't show the match too much they just sort of uh, cut essentially to the end and they're both knackered and the American guy Steve John from Cincinnati I, you know what didn't realise it until the final no no uh, when, when the final started when you see his sort of like face uh, you know he appears throughout the film um, but only in like fleeting moments. When there's a sustained shot, I was like, "That's John from Cincinnati." That's ridiculous. Mm. But look, there goes Johnny Appleseed. <laughs> Not my favourite cameo in the film, and I don't know if you spotted this one. Danny Baker. Danny Baker. I did spot that, and I really like that. That really pleased me because I was like, "Proper South London." This is great. Chris Moles in it as well, but you just ignore that. Um, my favourite cameo. Did you spot who the driver was? Uh, Stanley. <laughs> Stanley uh, doing a terrible cameo for no reason. No, um, Simon Greenall, whose name might not mean anything to you. No, is he? Michael the Geordie from Iron Man. Oh, Marcus. yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And again, it was the voice. I was like, who is that? And mm. I sort of rewound it. I was like, Michael. 
And obviously he's done a lot of other horror movies. So that was the thing. I started to enjoy the film because I was looking out for... I was like, oh, well, maybe other people will turn. And so, and every time uh, old uh, Nikolai Costa Walden turned out, I was like, okay, this is, uh, you know, Jamie Lannister voice. There's enough to... So, yeah, it's not really fair to judge the film on that. Because as I say, the leads, Paul Bettany, I've never seen... Is it Layer Cake or Gangster Number One? Gangster Number One. I have seen Gangster Number One. It's right. <laughs> um, yeah. I saw the cinema and didn't enjoy it much, but I'm sure it's better than... I saw uh, it on DVD. It's okay. I, um, I was at my nan's the other day, though, and she's got one of those, like silly little antique clocks and they just rem- I remember that scene where he smashes it into the guy's face um, no Paul Bettany's um, he's good in some things um, he um, Lakeisha is the godfather of a kid and the godfather is Paul Bettany oh really yeah you might want to say that Lakeisha is the godmother of a kid what did I say godfather Lakeisha is the godfather you right? <laughs> <laughs> whatever <man. laughs> should be fine um yeah, I mean, just reading about the film afterwards, uh, one of the more exciting things that I found out um, was the fact that he's the voice of Jarvis in the Iron Man and Avengers films, which I never knew. Who is Michael? Uh, Paul Bettany. Paul Bettany. Oh, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, I didn't know that. I was like, oh, right. So, uh, Paul Bettany's... And to do another, you know, comic book allusion related to this, Kirsten Dunst... And this is this is entirely on me. This is not the thought of Kirsten Dunst on the filmmakers... I, I struggle to buy Kirsten Dunst a romantic lead because I don't really find her attractive. I'm not saying she's unattractive. She's clearly not. Do you think it's like Andy McDowell? Where it's just uh, it's just preposterous that uh, she's the uh, object of uh, design. Andy McDowell's quite cute, I think. <laughs> well, whereas, my, my problem with Kirsten Dunst is... I think, Mary Steenburgen? <laughs> um, with Kirsten Dunst, they cast her as Mary Jane in the Spider-Man films and famously in the Spider-Man comics... When Mary Jane's first introduced, it's Aunt May who has a friend who has a niece called Mary Jane Watson, mm. and Peter Parker's thinking my elderly aunt's elderly friend is trying to hook me up with her uh, maiden niece. This is going to be horrible, and he's got terrible visions of. Uh... But you know, eventually, he's spidey sense tingling. <laughs> um, but he eventually sort of goes along with it, just basically to keep Aunt May quiet. He's like, I'll just be polite and give it a go. So. Um, Mary Jane, arrange, uh, he arranges to pick her up and uh, in a very famous scene in the comics, knocks on the door and the door opens and she's an impossibly beautiful redhead model and uh, she looks at him looking agog at her and says, uh, face it tiger, you hit the jackpot. <laughs> and it's a great scene because it's a really clever reveal and it's been really well built up. And, and this Tiger is... being a Tim Hemmer reference. <laughs> uh, but... And this is, again, my own personal issue and proclivities and preferences, but I don't think if you knocked on the door and Kirsten Dunn's open it, you'd be a gog. I wouldn't be... And this is... It's going to sound terrible, but I just don't think she wouldn't not be banded like that. So, uh, uh, and the same with this in terms of... She didn't come across as a particularly plausible tennis player, and I don't really buy her as a romantic lead um, in that way. I don't think I thought she was good in Spider-Man, though. See, I, I couldn't get past that. I couldn't get past that that she wasn't... Their relationship uh, is a bit... Um, I mean, I suppose if you're looking at it from that point of view, that she's not that hot, then you can kind of buy their relationship. Whereas I was thinking she's Kirsten Dunst, so it's kind of ridiculous that... But the, she'd the, waste but, her time on. Yeah, because the relationship doesn't... Um, it, it's not a kind of... doesn't really get, um, develop organically, does it? No, no. Like, he walks in on her in the shower, yeah. right, at some hotel room mix-up, she just stands there naked going like... Grinning. 
Yeah, I can't remember what she said. Like, new balls, please. Or whatever. She <laughs> probably doesn't say she that. definitely but. doesn't say that. <laughs> but, you know, she... um, Like, they're kind of suddenly... Like, they're in love. It's love at first sight sort of thing. There's no character See, development. I didn't, I didn't buy it as love at first sight for me. And I, I could buy that part of it. It seemed like a very functional thing where they're both quite tense going into the tournament. And it almost seems like a release. There's this sort of, like... Uh, forbidden love where her dad doesn't approve and he, he thinks he should know better. You know, he needs to focus. It's going to be his last tournament. And they tend to sort of like uh, fall into bed in a very functional manner, sort of like this release of tension. But then the relationship, you know, whether that works or not. I mean, in terms of that, it, it's like... A, it doesn't work. <laughs> there's a key scene where uh, the American tennis player played by John from Cincinnati uh, attacks her honour on the London Eye. And, uh, <laughs> did anything strike you as odd about that scene? Um, let me consult my notes London Eye cocktail party I thought it said coleslaw panda <laughs> on my notes that's why it says coleslaw panda you'll have to remind me when what the thing uh, is that they got off while it was still moving yeah well like they're on the London Eye and he knocks this guy out and they just run straight off the pod yeah and they're straight to his it's car kind of a hilarious yeah it's kind of a and you're like in reality as it happened I was just like thinking what would happen is he punched that guy in the face Run to the other end of the pod and then go, oh, we're still 30 foot up. Yeah. This is embarrassing. And it'd just be an awkward thing where the guy sort of gets to his feet and everyone would be sort of looking around going, so he's just, just chinned him because he Ooh. said something about her. But instead they just sort of run, run to his car, which is parked on Westminster Bridge. Like his valet parking yeah. on Westminster Bridge. Yeah. Or something. But again, this is... You South can't, London. But, but also, it's a romantic comedy. You're not allowed, you can't really sort of pick logic. Maybe if it was funnier, you would uh, be able to let that go. But it just, I just sort of went, it's not London I works, is it? You can't just punch someone and run off. Yeah, so the relationship uh, develops. So you've got the silliness where the kind of breakup coincides with her exit. There's a terrible scene at the beginning where he's serving, they're on the practice courts. You know, the very same practice courts where I watched Anna Kornikova, Steve. Uh, go back and listen to the Wimbledon episode. I haven't already said that. And yeah, she says, she like whispers in his hair, you know, hit this can and I'll sleep with you. And he just sort of, Oh, that was quite amusing, I thought. He, he whacks it and it hits someone right in the face. Yeah, he serves someone. He serves what goes so hard to hit someone in the side of the head, yeah. But, like, the Wimbledon... Like, you know, I was saying about Pat Cash having a lot to answer for. You know, I've, I've got a bit of an issue with films where I just... I kind of I take... I kind of expect too much um, accuracy sometimes. Like, in, when it's not that important. Like, geography's not that particularly important yeah. in things... But I do think if you can just do the correct thing, do the correct thing. Yeah. Like they've got any court at Wimbledon, and they're playing like he's playing a semi-final of Wimbledon on an outer court. That's that's wrong. Yeah, it doesn't happen, does it? Like yeah, people yeah. must, and like anyone who's sort of got a passing interest in Wimbledon who's watching the film will pick up on that. Yeah. And go like, well, he's playing a semi-final. Like there was no one watching it. They also wrongly refer to, I think, if I remember right, they refer to Court Three as the Graveyard of Champions, which is Court Two. Right. Yeah, Champions. yeah. You know, it's. The tennis is all CGI, in it? Well, the, the, apparently the tennis was supposed to be... They sort of trained to get the people to uh, play tennis, but then realised it wasn't... Right. I mean, this is the thing. This goes back to uh, my earlier point about playing away. If you're doing a story about, you know, a, a sort of local team from Brixton and playing a village team from Sneddington, you can let the people just play the sport, and it's fine, because if, uh, you know... If someone bowls a wide, that's what's going to happen in uh, a village match quite naturally. With the speedway thing, we don't know about uh, speedway, and they didn't show enough of the speedway for it to be an issue. Um, with the calcium kids, 
the whole film was so pointless. The, yeah, the it's all of the training boxing. in it. Yeah, yeah the whole. No... Well, the well, the fact is, they at the beginning when like someone who's who just broke the uh, champ, the contender's hand with their head, yeah. is then going to be the contender. Yeah. The, it renders it yeah. ridiculous. You're not take it. And here, but here, of course, the problem is it's set at the Wimbledon Championships. These, you know, you're, you're portraying as you say the the, the the semi-final and the final of one of the biggest. Te- so at that point, the veracity has to be quite strong. Mm. Isn't it? it has to be believable. It has to be plausible. It is. I mean, it's set in the real world yeah. to a degree. You yeah. know, because John McEnroe uh, is constantly like he's the commentator, the go-to commentator. His acting is a problem throughout. Well, the thing is. The commentary team they have is uh, John McEnroe and Chris Ever, which is clearly supposed to be to sell it to the American audience because that's the NBC commentary team. It's not the BBC commentary team. So which is legitimate? That's you know. no, fine. Yeah, it's, but it just seems odd to have it as a British film and then to have this very American element. I mean, you've got the, yeah. whole, the whole issue with the agent where he has like the British and the American flags where he's trying to play both sides off because he wants you know. I didn't really notice it, but... Oh, John Favreau, innit? Yeah, yeah. Speaking of Iron Man. Um, well, that's how Paul Bettany got the part, from. Oh, really? Mm. I didn't really notice it, but apparently every time you see the news as well, it's NBC. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, they eventually mentioned Leighton Hewitt and Roger Federer, right? <laughs> yeah. But in the first hour or so, the only real-life tennis player they refer to is Tommy Haas. Did you notice that? <laughs> yeah. It's a bit odd. Well, also, in terms of... They tried to cast a few sort of, like, uh, up-and-coming uh, players... As their opponents and people playing matches, obviously for veracity and also just to sort of uh, save in terms of training and whatnot. But um, apparently, uh, the director looked at a few potential people, and uh, he had a look at a young female player called Maria Sharapova, but didn't bother <laughs> getting her to uh, be in the film. Which is yeah, unfortunate. Yeah. I think she made it in the film of her life. I think I think she might have won Wimbledon the year this came out. So. That probably would have helped in terms done, of uh, yeah. marketing and whatnot. Talking of people who weren't in the film but could have been in the film, do you know who the alternate leads were for this? Hugh Grant and Reese Witherspoon. Correct. Reese Witherspoon. Yeah. Hugh Grant would have been 42 when they filmed it. It's one of those things where you go. No, it wasn't true. Yeah, I mean, it's very much a kind of uh, Hollywood type movie, isn't it? In, oh, in numbers, the worst way. You numbers. know, he comes up with, he gets an obligatory uh, injury scare. Yeah. It's a bit where the ball boy gets injured and it's kind of a bad omen. She's leaving. She's at the airport. There's mm. no way she's coming back. That's it. They're finished. And then obviously she turns up in the crowd and uh, he wins. This isn't spoilers because no, don't there's no it. other way this film can end, is there, than he wins uh, the Wimbledon title. And even though she's blown her Wimbledon title then, in like the epilogue, he makes it very clear she wins Wimbledon twice. Yeah. So, uh, you know, everyone's a winner. It's fine. They use a David Gray track at one point in it. And like, you know, a couple of weeks ago I referred to uh, Coldplay as being like a Big Mac. Or being like uh, Heston Blumenthal's uh, words on a Big Mac that you can't say that's disgusting. I think with David Gray it's like a pot noodle. It actually <laughs> does taste like urine and polystyrene. You know what I mean? It's, it is vile. Louis switching off right now. It's you know that. Unacceptable. <laughs> like David Gray, does he? No, he lost pot noodles, hasn't he? I read a comment on YouTube, you know. No, so, no, IMDb. So this would be gold. Yeah, no, it was actually IMDb. Um, and someone commented they they think it would have been a better film if it was set in America. <laughs> or Wimbledon. <laughs> Flushing Meadows. <laughs> St- starring Chad Michael Murray. And, um, 
I've known Kate Bosworth. <laughs> An Englishman in a final. Fantastic. If you could win that cup, sir, we'd all be so proud. I'll do my best. And I don't even like tennis. I think it's legitimate for us to talk about match point a little bit. Um, will we be having some spoilers? Yeah. It seems inevitable, doesn't it? Yeah. Because it's just, it, the film takes such a turn at one point. We'll come to that. Despite the framing of this episode, you're not listening to Midnight Video. We will talk about the ends of these films yeah. quite openly. Yeah, it's Woody Allen. It's one of those recent Woody Allen films that people insist is uh, where he's back to his best. When in truth, you know, he hasn't really made much good yeah. for a long time. He was, I mean, I love Woody Allen. Like, late, you know, the 70s, 80s stuff. So even in the 90s, there's a few bits and bobs. Yeah, Just yeah, tremendous. Like, he's arguably the most important figure in comedy of the last 50 years. Longer, maybe. But, you know, he's gone well off the path. Well, I think the key word you said there is comedy. And as I say, when, we, when I sat down to watch Wimbledon... I was expecting it to be a romantic comedy set at Wimbledon, written and directed by Woody Allen, starring Paul Bettany. And at that point, I was quite excited. And then it wasn't that. And then when I sat down to watch this, I was like, well, is this a comedy? And it becomes pretty clear, pretty early on, isn't it? It's a drama. Yeah. Well, the thing is, he's, I mean, he's made um, some good dramas. Yeah, well. no, absolutely. Yeah, like, yeah. the most obvious point of comparison is Crime and Punishment, which is also hilarious. Have you seen Crime and Punishment? Yeah, yeah. You know, you've got the whole Alan Alder subplot where he's, you know, if it bends, it's funny. If it well, breaks, the, it's not funny. Well, this, this is the thing. He, even with his dramas, they're always funny bits, but there's no funny bits in this. There's no... You prefer the early funny ones, is that what you're saying? <laughs> Controversially. But yeah, uh, so, what's the guy's name? Um, Jonathan Reese. Myers yeah yeah. I'm not I must admit I'm not really a fan of I, you know there's certain movie stars um, who just their presence on the screen you find compelling yeah or yeah. you know even in like even sometimes in a bad film you can kind of you can watch Benicio Del Toro yeah. or Brad oh, Pitt yeah. you know there's certain yeah, just yeah. certain actors it's different with different people with Jonathan Reese Myers I've never taken to him really partly because of his voice I suppose but he plays um, a former tennis player who's kind of knocked on the head and is looking for a new career, I suppose. Similar to Paul Bettany in um, Wimbledon, where they both have gone to this tennis club to get a paid job coach, teaching. Yeah, yeah, to, yeah. yeah, exactly. Coaching rich people. He gets involved with a girl, Emily Mortimer. Yeah. And her... Well, he trains her brother at the club, and then yeah. the brother introduces him to the family, so he meets her parents, who are quite taken with him. The brother himself really likes and they become friends, and then the sister becomes smitten with him. Mm. And it's very much a case of she becomes smitten with him, and he... Sees it not well. uh, well, Brian Cox, uh, her father, is hooking him up with uh, work and stuff, yeah. So that's because the daughter intercedes, the daughter sort of falls for him and wants to help him to become a success. He he sort of says, Well, I want to make something in my life, and she's like, Well, I can do that. And I think it's a mixture of sort of gratitude and comfort where he sort of thinks, Well, if I can hook up with her, yeah, definitely, yeah. Plus, you know, it never comes across as that cynical, it's never a case of him. Trying to wheedle his way into the family, he's quite. No, I think of... people sometimes end up in relationships and yeah. they just, you know, self-perpetuating. Obviously, there's Scarlett Johansson, which is uh, the kind of driving force of the film, which is uh, his brother-in-law's girlfriend. Yeah, and she's a kind of uh, aspiring actress. And well, the idea is right. Jonathan Rhys Myers. He's supposed to be from a working class background. They're filthy rich. They're millionaires. Yeah. With brother and sister. And she's a struggling actress who's also from... Montana. 
No, Colorado. Colorado, sorry, yeah. Um, but the thing is, right, he's talking in a posh English accent, and he's apparently Irish. Like, and not just Irish, but kind of poor Irish. Yeah, I think with that, you you get the feeling like he's been, he's spent his life trying to remove him. So I didn't mind that so much, I can see what you're saying. But I, I mean, he's he, reading Dostoevsky, so he's obviously like, and he, well... He's the one who mentions to uh, his, the, 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 the guy he's coaching, who whose family he marries into, he mentions a love of uh, the opera to him. He asks him if he knows a place near Broken by uh, some opera mm. CDs. And the guy goes, well... And it's, it's one of these things where you need to do it for the sake of the film. And the brother's like, well, actually, my family are going to watch the opera tomorrow night. We've got a spare seat in the box. Come and join us. So it does seem like... And as you say, he's reading Dostoevsky... He's uh, interested in the opera and the arts. And he becomes almost more besotted with that part of the family than anything else. It's not the people, it's the access they yeah, give the him to lifestyle. the arts. He, they, um, he, they buy him an apartment, essentially. Yeah. Uh, Parliament View Apartments. Yeah. Opposite... Um, on the number three bus route. Yeah, on the Parliament... What bridge? Lamp, um, Lambeth Bridge. Yeah, yeah. Lovely, lovely. Flat. Yeah, he used to go past it um, a lot. The way to, uh... I think they were kind of quite new at that time as well. They haven't been yeah. there for that long, have they? Because that's roughly where the um, where the advertising agency is in how to get ahead in advertising. Oh, okay, like this view out the window is almost the same. That's a remarkable building. view, isn't it? Yeah, brilliant. Well, I mean, they've named the uh, the building after the view. <laughs> I thought the film was very interesting in in terms of that as well. It does, and in terms of our own sort of remit to look at South London, it is. Essentially, you know, a key theme of it is how uh, Riverside, Bankside, the South Bank as a very specific strip of land has been occupied by the middle classes. Yeah, it's a north-facing South London film, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. And it, but it's also about how these people are living there, you know, the, the key scenes that happen at the Saatchi Gallery, mm. and which at the time uh, was in County Hall, just yeah. a, a little further along by Westminster Bridge. Then at Tate Modern, which is a little further along, uh, obviously on both sides. So it's 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 very much about, um, you know, as I say the 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 arts and the residences being taken over by uh, the middle classes. And even in terms of, of the film at large, as you say, it's about this um, middle class family, and they make it clear that Brian Cox is a self made man. Yeah, are they yeah. even either even above middle class? And they yeah, absolutely. upper middle He's, class. I mean, yeah. they live in a huge mansion. Yeah. And they've got, as you say, they're paying for uh, essentially apartments and things for their kids all over the place. Um, and then essentially you get this working class guy and this working class woman that come into the family. Mm. And the one who plays the game in Jonathan Rhys Myers is accepted by the family. You know, he's embraced by them and accepted by them and given opportunities. The one that won't play the game is Scarlett Johansson, who insists on still being an actress, even though his family don't approve of that, is eventually forced out. But at the same time, an attraction develops between them, so he starts an affair with her. So you've got this sort of thing where he's in this marriage of convenience, so he's tied into the, the, the family on that point, but his true lust and desire is for this other outsider. But he knows, if that's ever found out, he's doomed. Yeah, and I mean, some of his actions relating to that, I find it difficult to get on board with. It was just... I mean, I know it's supposed to be, you know, love and lust... It was just so reckless, wasn't it? Their yeah. behaviour throughout, yeah. and you so uh, he's constantly sort of going. Uh, you know, at the same time he's building his career, mm. he's constantly walking out of the office for an hour, 
to go yeah. and meet her at our hotel. And there's one bit where, like, uh, there's someone else in the office, I don't know if he's his direct superior or someone on the same sort of level as him, where they're like, uh, well, the guys are coming in for that meeting, and now he's like, just keep them comfortable. Um, mm. I won't be late in three. And you're like, there's no way he's getting promoted. And then, like, three seasons later, Brian Cox is going, I'm opening a new division, I want yeah. you to head up. Don't, because he's all over the place right now. He's not. But then, that's also made clear where there's, there's various scenes where he, he loses in the market. And Emily wants, well, Daddy will make sure that we're fine. You've got a safety net, you know, you can't really fail. So he has got this thing where he's, he's so, his success is so intrinsically tied to the fortunes of the family, isn't it? So, Do you think the fact that it's about posh people is one of the reasons it's difficult to engage with? Yeah, I really do. Because there's so much of it where, for me personally, you know, it's hard to sort of sympathise with any of the characters. Yeah, you can't, can you? No. no. You know, and the drama, you lose a lot of the drama where... Anytime it looks like, you know, he's like, oh, I've lost this and lost that. And he's like, it's Good. fine. Dad. But it's, he's like, oh, I don't know if I can afford this place. He's like, oh, daddy will help us pay for it. So you sort of go, yeah. right, there's no drama here. So the drama then has to be ramped up, doesn't it? I think at that yeah. point. So that eventually he has an affair with Scarlett Johansson. She becomes pregnant and wants them to start a new life together. But he knows he can't leave this family. He knows about this family. He sort of staked everything on this. So although he wants to, you get the feeling he does genuinely want to yeah. leave Emily Moore and Garth with Scarlett Johansson. He can't. And then she threatens to... She confronts him outside the house, doesn't she? And threatens yeah. to tell the wife. Yeah, and that's when the, the film uh, takes a bit of a turn. So this is your spoiler alert. He... Yeah, you ready? Yeah, everyone? <laughs> he goes home and he shoots her, doesn't he? Yeah, he, he gets a shotgun from the family home. The sort of Emily Moore's family home um, makes it look like there's been a, a drug related burglary and uh, shoots her and her elderly neighbour and steals the neighbour's jewellery and and this was I don't know this was the, the bit that I enjoyed most in the film um, well two elements really I mean last the, half an hour I, I thought was a really um, a really good tense kind of uh it's kind of Hitchcockian almost, like in like some of you know, like the Wrong Man or um, I don't know, a couple of other Hitchcock films where you know it's just like it's, it basically is the person going to get caught sort of thing. Well, also it shows it's Woody Allen. You know, for all, all I had a lot of qualms about this film, but for all those qualms, it shows Woody Allen as a master sort of storyteller and filmmaker. Where at the start of the film, when Jonathan Rhys Myers is talking about life and fate. There's an image of uh, a rally, a tennis rally, where the mm. balls pass over the net, and there's a bit where he talks about the ball hitting the top of the net, and it freezes the frame, and he talks about how your fortune can hang on on luck at this yeah. one moment. Does the ball roll forward and you win the point, or does it drop back and you lose? And the ball hits the net and drops back, and you know you've got that image at the start of the film, and then at the end of the film, as part of his plan to clear himself, um, he throws the old woman's jewellery in the river. Um, and he's just chucking all his stuff away. And as he's walking out, he realises at the last minute he's still got her wedding ring in his pocket. So he turns round and throws it. It hits the edge of the bridge. South Bank. And uh, it's the, the same freeze frame as in this early thing. So it's like echoing the same shot of the ball passing over the thing. And the ring drops back onto the paper. It's a nice touch, isn't it? Sort of yeah, really so nice presumably the, the piece of evidence that's going to damn him. Yeah. But instead... You and um, Remner, yeah, and who's the other policeman? Because I didn't. I only watched. I watched three quarters of it uh, yesterday, and I ran out of time. Um, James Nesbitt. Yeah, there you go. And they. So I didn't see. Re, I didn't see the end of the game. But I'm gonna try and remember it the best I can. But yeah, they're they're the two uh, coppers. 
and uh, yeah, this ring that he's uh, sort of inadvertently dropped on the uh, South Bank. Well, he's done a very good job. Gonna... He's done a good job in terms of setting it up as a drug-related burglary, but then they call him in for questioning and ask him about the last time he saw him. He claims it was a year ago, but then they reveal they've got a diary. But she's wrote about him very extensively mm. over the last year. So the, at that point, they, they, you know, he becomes a, a, an object of suspicion, basically because he's lied. Um, and this is, it shouldn't really work as a scene, but I really enjoyed it, where after he's committed the murder, he's, uh, he wakes up one night and he's visited by the ghosts of Scarlett Johansson and the elderly woman. And, well, I'd forgotten this. Yeah, and they basically confront him over what he's done. And again, this is another great echoing from earlier in the film, and, and a really good mark of, of William as a filmmaker, where there's a, a great scene earlier on where, as part of his, you get a thing as part of his course of self improvement, he's reading Crime and Punishment. And it's probably the only sort of visual gag in the film, which for a Woody Allen film is, is very restrained. Um, he's reading Crime and Punishment, and he puts the book down, and then picks up a book which is a concise guide to Dostoevsky. So he's clearly mm. going through the book page by page. And, and you sort of think, okay. And, and it's interesting because you read it as um, this guy who's trying to improve himself. And then they sort of sell that even more by having a scene a couple of minutes later where Brian Cox, uh, as the, the patriarch, is talking to his daughter and going, oh, he's a very fascinating young man. We had a really interesting talk about Dostoevsky. And you're like, oh, okay. So he's, he's Dostoevsky rejoices, he's paying off, it's, it's getting him a place in the family. But it's only in the final third of the film where he's done this thing that you realise... It, it echoes the themes of crime and punishment. He is Raskolnikov. He is this man who's committed this terrible crime and has to justify it to himself and live with the consequences. And he does. He sort of... The ghosts come and confront him and he explains to them, I've had to do terrible things um, for the sake of my family. And But then, as the old woman says, you know, the Scottie Hans character is pregnant with his, his child. So she's like, you killed your unborn child. And he's like, yep. And the other thing, he accepts it. He has to accept what he's done. So I thought in, in, there was elements like that where I was like, this is, uh, yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Stuff. Yeah, but, but it's the last half hour, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, it's, you sit, you know, you sit through quite, it's quite stiff before yeah. that, I think. The dialogue's pretty bad. Two of the most, I mean, for all the inaccuracies in Wimbledon, yeah, we'll, we'll talk, you know, the film Wimbledon, there's two lines of dialogue in Match Point that are just unforgivable, I think, Steve, right? What, right in the first scene, both of them, yeah, where, or the first couple of scenes, when he goes... I was never going to be Rosetsky or Agassi. <laughs> the, the two greatest fans of all time, obviously. <laughs> and then later on, someone goes, uh, tell me, who was better, Henman or Agassi? <laughs> like, never mind the fact great. that he would have played Pete Sampras at some point, <laughs> probably. <laughs> who was better, Henman or Agassi? Well, also, um, and this is, if, you know, for, for all, uh, all the praise I've given the film in terms of a lot of the construction and whatnot, the performances, I felt, were terrible. Yeah, because it is so stiff, isn't it? I think. Yeah. It's just... And it was uh, also in terms of the dialogue, and you'd know much more than me in terms of the process. Oh, far that, more. The Woody Allen has you, in terms you, of... you, you deal with uh, crime and punishment comparisons. <laughs> and I'll, uh... Well, no, just in terms of the, uh, the process that Woody Allen has. I mean, obviously, in a lot of his earlier films, and this is going to sound like we're constantly hung about his earlier films, he plays the lead. So, in terms of the dialogue being delivered, you know, it's ideal, isn't it? He knows exactly the emphasis he wants on certain words. I got the feeling with this, a lot of it was improvised. I don't know how true that is. It felt like a lot of it, he's sort of given them an outline for the scene. A bit like Larry Davis, sort of gone, this is what the scene needs to do, say what you think's natural. Because there's one bit, uh, quite late in the film, where um, John Friesmeier clearly flubs his line. 
but he yeah. clearly says something, and you like you go, you go cut and take it. Yeah. And I, I, was it kept in so it felt natural? I don't. I don't. I might not have seen that bit. As okay. I said, I only saw three quarters of it yesterday, but I didn't really feel that way in terms of the improvisation. That's not something that occurred to me. I just thought really? it was kind of wordy. I just thought it was wordy and stiff. And if you've seen any of Woody Allen's other films of. You know, say like if you take the kind of five films either side of it, Match Point is still one of the best ones, like Scoop, which might have been the one that immediately followed it, which has also got um, Scarlett Johansson in it as the lead. It's all appalling, absolutely appalling. I mean, it makes Match Point look like. But I think if you look at at sort of uh, Bullets Over Broadway, Manhattan Murder Mystery, which are sort of later films. It's still a verve to them, isn't there? There was a life... Whereas with this, it felt so sort of flat. And as I say, these are people... And and also, and again, this is probably a personal preference, when Brian Cox came up in the credits and he appeared in the film, one of my favourite things ever is Brian Cox shouting at someone. He no. shouts at someone yeah, brilliantly. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's so right. when I saw I was like... As Robert McKay... Robert McKee in the uh, in adaptation. Yeah, is yeah. tremendous, isn't he? And I was like, at some point, Brian Cox is going to shout at someone. Probably John Frieza. And so, so for me... And then it wasn't... The tone of the film made it clear that it wasn't going to happen. And that was a bit of a disappointment. So it just seemed odd that, in terms of the casting performances... I don't know. It shouldn't be because I expect certain things that they should happen. But it just seemed odd and sort of it, it did feel a little bit wasted... Um, yeah. Not, I don't mean he was high on drugs. <laughs> you know, he's just like he yeah, barely gets out of chair. He barely role, looks at yeah. anyone, does he? He's just sitting in the chair with his glasses on, reading most of. The film. Uh, or you know, it, it seemed like his role was to constantly reassure him that it will be fine financially. He's mm. like constantly going, "You'll be fine. You make her happy. I'll, I'll support you in anything. You know, I'm always here for money for you." And like, are you going to shout him at it's, any point? It's rare, isn't it? I don't think I've ever seen another film where. I've gone, yeah, the first two thirds are rubbish, first three quarters, but the the final bit was brilliant. It's <laughs> usually gone by that point. Yeah, exactly. It's normally the other way around. But I suppose Woody Allen's in quite a unique situation where his reputation means he can get films made. Not just his reputation, but the fact that he makes films relatively cheaply. He can just keep making... He's a, he's, there's a certain amount of money. Woody Allen's films will always make X yeah. amount of money. Yeah. And he makes like he guarantees make money in Europe, let alone um, in America. Well, this is the thing. You know, originally, it was supposed to be um, would have been better set in America. Isn't it? it was supposed to be set in America, wasn't it? But he couldn't get the money in America. Like, well, get Vicky the money in Barcelona. He wrote that in the seventies, apparently, to be filmed in uh, San either San Diego or San Francisco. Oh, right. Probably San Francisco, given the. Uh... See, I've not seen that. It looks terrible. I didn't enjoy it at all. Mm-hmm. But it's one of the ones that's kind of highly rated of his later films. Like I say, right. Crime and Punishment. You said you've seen it. Yeah, right? yeah. Very similar, um, like kind of final third. Yeah, yeah. Like with um, Martin Landau's Jude Judah character um, being the kind of equivalent, and it's just so much of a better film. Crime and Punishment is one one of Woody Allen's top five films, maybe even top three. So watch that. But Match Point is better than any of the other sport films we covered. <laughs> Even though it's this is my thing this morning when you were talking about it, I was like, it's not a sport film, is it? I mean, you've no, got, it's not. It's not. You've got. I mean, you can make the argument that particular shot uh, of the ball hitting the net and falling back with his own echo with the ring hitting the wall mm. and falling back. It's a very nice touch, and it, it, it's, well it's a, a theme. So therefore, it's a theme that runs throughout the film, and you know. He's got, but he, he's only he coaches for like the first ten minutes, and then he's a businessman. So you know, it's not enough of a sport. No. But I thought, as I say, an interesting film in terms of South London, just in terms of that very specific strip yeah. of the South Bank. Just a word on one of the cameos, Paul K. Whenever he turns up in anything, I uh, well, this I'll was be, I'll grin. This was one of my things in terms of uh, the film. It was so sort of dry and humourless, and yet. 
Paul Kay's in it. A couple of the League of Gentlemen are in it. Yeah. So, he tries to do a gank, Paul Kay, doesn't he? I'm going to try to do a gank. I mean, there's a wok line, isn't it? Yeah, he's it? like, you know, I'll throw in 225 good a week. It's London, you know. Yeah. I'll chuck in a wok, you yeah. know what that is? Be, yeah, because an Asian thing for cooking. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but it's not like, did you even spot Mark Gattis? Yeah. Yeah. Why get Mark Gattis in to lose yeah, a, ping, a, a ping pong in yeah, 10 seconds? Yeah, I I'll tell you what, and he walks out of the room, and like, I, was, I thought, oh, that's Mark Gattis, but the role was so small. Yeah. Unless he comes back in the last 20 minutes, which no, he doesn't. He, does he doesn't. His role was so small, I thought, no, it couldn't have been Mark Gattis. Because Mark Gattis, at that point, was too big to be Absolutely. doing it, you know. But. Woody Allen. Exactly. It? It's, it's, like, it's the know, opposite of the Calcium Kid. Yeah. Where, you, you're going to get me in the Woody Allen film. I'll do exactly. anything. Where you're I'll saying, where you're saying to me, I'm like, Mark Lerner, would you I'll fly between them for three days? If Woody Allen said, you've got to travel by camel for five days, mm. and when you get there, you're basically just holding up a window because the latch has gone. I'd be mm. like, for how long? Six hours. And it's raining. Let's go. Because you would, because it's Woody Allen. That's the, so with that, the cameos, and like, you know, you and Brenner, it's a tiny role. You know. No, but that, that was a bit more significant. Oh, it? yeah, it's, bit, needed, it's you know, slightly meatier, but I mean, still, you know. He's not what you and Bremer have been in since Transport. No, no, it's true. But, it, you know, he's, he's arguably too big a name for that role. You know, you don't need a name actor to basically sort of go, uh, tell us about your dream. Yeah, because that's the, the flip side of the ghost is uh, uh, the character of uh, James Nesbitt as the police officer. At the same night the ghost visit uh, Jonathan Rhys Myers has a vivid dream where he realises exactly what he's done to commit the crime. And he's entirely correct, isn't he? He mm. just catches it beat for beat. Um, and just he's like, so I'm going to pursue this with all my energy, so I'm convinced. And he's right, this guy has committed yeah, the murder. Yeah. But then you and Brendan goes, well, we found uh, a dead drug addict with the ring yeah. in his pocket, who's clearly just found it on the pavement. Mm. So it's this wonderful thing of, you know, the ring bouncing back, but that gets you to win. Claire, Claire, I'm having a lot with Chris for a bit. If I said it's five o'clock somewhere, darling, I've got some serious cocktails to start making. Irish, have you ever had a Cuba Libra or a Caipirinha? We didn't manage to turn up any uh, secret Raging Bulls or uh, <laughs> even in any given Sunday among <laughs> our uh, South London sport films, but uh, it's a tiny genre. Yeah, I think uh, fair play to you for tracking down so many. And as I like the fact that it was uh, such a disparate selection of sports as well. So you'll probably put trailers and stuff, Steve, on southlondonhardcore.com. Links yep. to it on our Facebook page as well, which you'll have to find by searching. Uh, Twitter.com slash slhcpodcast, or at slhcpodcast if you type in the tweet. <laughs> yeah, I'll be putting stuff up on the website, linking that to Facebook, and then putting it out on Twitter as well, so it'll be uh, just a deluge. I just want to quickly apologise for calling the Woody Allen film Crimes and Misdemeanours, uh, Crime and Punishment, several times on the podcast. Uh, a few weeks ago I completed two David Bowie songs, and I don't want people to think I'm an ignoramus. <laughs> <laughs>